Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Megan Young found her way to Seattle by becoming a strength and conditioning coach with the Sounders, the city's formidable MLS team. As a longtime strength coach for the Chicago Red Stars and the Auburn Tigers, she is no stranger to athletic development. But what particular challenges does the sport of soccer present for a performance coach, and how are the men's and women's games different? To find out, listen now. Here it is, episode 582. to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Mr. McQuilkin, good to see you. Well, I'm glad we took the show on the road. I, I can't believe it. I mean, we got out in terms Charles, of- you did it. <laughs> Pat on the back. Well, it's so weird. He just has a bunch of iPhones set up. <laughs> Don't give away our secrets. <laughs> this is a giant production studio bunker that we whipped uh, together. It's so weird. I can't believe you broke into this place. <laughs> Don't. I, I, uh, like, can you imagine Chris like going around just yanking on doors, and all of a sudden he like Jimmy's his uh, his room key in, and is like, "Holy shit, it worked!" Don't ask how I found this. And even when I was texting Megan, I was like, "We didn't exactly ask permission, so don't go asking a worker where this room is." Well, the funny part is, is when she walked in when we were talking with Jim. Uh, at first, I like I was like, "Oh God, I hope this is somebody that works at this hotel." Like coming to boot us out. And then I was like, oh, wait, that's our guest. Thank God. <laughs> yes. Well, welcome Megan Young, performance coach with Seattle Sounders. Yep. That's new, right? Four months. Yeah. Four months. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for having me, guys. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. So uh, let's discuss that a little bit. Yeah. How, how did that come about? And more importantly, like, like, give us some details. Yeah. So four months with Seattle now um, in the MLS side, I've worked within what I call world's football for about 15 years now. Um, before that, I was working as a high performance director for a women's team in Chicago. Chicago's Red Stars, the pro team there. So it was opportunity meets making my family happy. Um, so it's like one of those things where now I get to be a part of what I consider a great organization and people within the world of sport in America especially consider a really good organization. So you put me there and I put my fiance in her happy place in Seattle. So it was a no runner. No, she did her. She's smarter than me. Uh, she did. (laughs) Sounds like my wife. Yeah, she did. Good job. Uh, she did her master's in doctorate work there. And so for her to get back there and feel like she's in her home, like that, that's everything, you know? Um, and then also professionally for it to make sense for me and I get the water is super important to me. So water mountains and it's green. So in Chicago in the winter, everything kind of dies in the Pacific Northwest. It just gets wet, but still is green. So sure. I'm down. Yeah. Yeah. No, my mom's from Vancouver. Oh, and so like, oh yeah, like my whole family's from that part of the world. And so we spent a lot of time in Seattle. Uh, so I'm, I'm pretty familiar with it. It was kind of a little sad, like, like seeing all like the riots and everything on the news and yeah. being like, Oh, I know where that is. Yeah. Oh man. They, they killed that place. But, uh, yeah. it looks like it's coming back. Yeah. I mean, I love where we live. Um, I love Seattle as a city so far of what I've experienced and I've barely scratched the surface. You know how it is. Yeah. If you're in pro sports, whether you're an athlete or a coach, doesn't matter. You're pretty busy. Yeah. I, uh, it, it is funny because people think when you travel, like you have some like, oh, you get to go to these cities and they, you don't get to go to these cities. You <laughs> no. basically show up, you get on a plane, you go to the hotel, you go to the practice and you get back on. You're like, all hotels look the same. What city are we in? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the food's all about the same. It's always a Marriott. Yeah. You're like, oh boy, <laughs> everything's a turkey dinner. Yeah, exactly. So what, what about uh, like the change, like the athletes and like more importantly, like your approach to working with them? Yeah, so prior to Chicago, I worked at Auburn University for almost 12 years. So in the collegiate side, worked 
a lot of different sports, so men's and women's both sides, football, basketball, kind of the whole gamut. And then going to the pro side, a difference there, right? Like in when you work within the pro women's side in the U.S., you're working with the some of the best footballers in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the best footballers in the men's side are also in the U.S., but there's also a lot over in Europe and wow. other places. Explain that one to me. Uh, like, why is it that like uh, the best male soccer players come from like Brazil and these other countries, but yet like the top female are usually from America? Is it because yeah. like if you're a really great athlete and, and as a you know as a woman here in America you play soccer, whereas dudes that are really good athletes here in America don't necessarily play soccer? I think that I mean part of it. One, you're talking about the culture of Brazil and kind of what they did technically of having so much futsal and not necessarily just soccer. So the technical ability of some of those players and then also how they built. Did, did I tell you my Brazil story? No, let's go. Uh, so I'll do this, didn't I? It's a very good one. Uh, so Tony, Tony Gonzalez, like uh, the, the funny joke is the best trick the NFL ever played was convincing uh, the world that Tony Gonzalez was Mexican. He's not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, his family's from the Azores and when they came through Ellis Island, they gave him the Gonzalez when it was like Gonkle. <laughs> so the NFL used to capitalize on that. So Tony had this big thing with like a following in like Latin America NFL. So we got to go to Brazil for a month and uh, we were actually in Rio and we were walking down like it was during carnival. We were walking oh, down wow. the street like uh, me and like seven like big black dudes who played in the NFL with us. Um, have That's no, a scene in Brazil. I have no, no business being where we were. Like, yeah. like the most dangerous place. Yeah. And we, we were fine. And uh, we walked down and there was uh, like an alleyway and there must have been about 60 kids in this alleyway. Now, mind you, it was probably as wide as this table. Yeah. Playing futsal. Yeah. Uh, like this incredible game with trash cans and like they were bouncing it off the wall, jumping off the yep. wall. We stopped and we're like, we, we thought it was like a fight. <laughs> and like these kids were kicking this like homemade ball that looked like a ball they'd wrap in duct tape. Yeah. And they were and there there was multiple balls. Yeah. There was like four balls. There was like multiple goals. And like I don't know what they played. And then later on we were like, what was that game? And somebody was like, oh, it's futsal. It's or futsal. Yeah. And uh, it's a soccer game these kids play. And then they they related why the best soccer players in the world, of course, come from Brazil because yeah. of this game. And you know, one that's a great story. I would love to go to Rio also with those same people that you went with. Uh, uh, dude, when I tell you dangerous, like like we had a, a uh, we somehow convinced these people to take us up to where the Cocobado de Christi is, uh, like you know the big Jesus yeah. statue, and it's right in the middle of like the gnarliest favela. Yeah, like you're driving yeah. through and you're like, there's dudes with AK-47s, yeah. like shanties, the whole deal, and I'm like we're probably going to be fine. Like there are way easier people to rob than us. Yeah. So, so like that was like the, when you said Brazil story, I thought you were going to tell the, uh, the coconut dodgeball one. Oh, that was a great, that was another great story. So we started in Bahia in the North uh-huh. and then we, we traveled like down and went to Rio and then went to, uh, um, Florinopolis. And so, uh, I got up early one morning, like there was all this like, you know, parades and I just got up and I was like, man, there was like, um, uh, every like every quarter mile in Brazil, there's like a pull up structure, and like everybody like that's why I think gyms would fail there because it was like pull ups, sit ups, the whole deal. Yeah. So I go down and I do some pull ups. I'm like, this is great. I like see some dude on the street like selling coconuts. So I get these like big coconuts. I'm like, oh, this is great. I'm in Brazil. I got to swim. It's early. I'm like seeing you know seeing all these people, and I turn around and there's these kids following me. There's like five or ten of these kids, and they're probably like eight, nine, ten years old. And I like kind of see them, and I kind of turn around, look over my shoulder, and I just turned around, and they pulled out steak knives like they were gonna to mug me and uh the kid like said something basically like you know like f you give me your money and so i took the coconut and basically smashed him in the face with it and then chased the kids and then uh, later on i like told the story i'm like ah oh, these kids were playing around and uh, they were like you know those kids legitimately like, stab people and rob them i'm like well they didn't rob anybody today but that kid caught a coconut in the face how a coconut saved your life 
Dude, when I say I threw this thing, I hit that that kid square in the face, and those kids dropped their knives and took off running, and I chased them. And like the story, my buddy, like we were telling our guide, and he was like, "You shouldn't do that. Those kids hurt people." I'm like, ah, just kids playing around. They just had like little steak knives. They'll be fine. Yeah, that was a that was a funny story too. Poor kid. And now I think about it, I'm like, holy shit, that was terrible. Good thing there's no social media around to catch me on that one. Or you yeah. could have died. Uh, that, there's also that side. He's worried about like the how that looks optics wise, yeah, and I'm like, I'm oh like, yeah, you also could have died. Yeah, no, I uh, believe me. There, I, I have um, evaded death so many times. At this point, like I'm like a cat. Like I'm on my last. I'm like, believe me, this this kid's not going to kill me. If the NFL couldn't kill me, like like uh, yeah. I What's mean, your favorite death evasion story? Oh, oh man, That's a good one. <laughs> my bed. My favorite death evasion story. Uh, I was in Daytona Beach uh, for Daytona Bike Week, and a buddy of mine, while I was an active NFL player, a buddy of mine had this badass uh, twin turbo Hayabusa with an air, air shifter, and I got on the bike and uh, clicked it into first gear, hit the air shifter, and the bike took off, <laughs> and I and I kind of laid down on the tank, and I watched the Speedo hit 200, Yep. Uh, and I was in fifth gear. Yeah. And then I let off and slowed it down and brought it back around. Had no helmet. So I did 200 miles an hour on a Hayabusa, laying on the tank. With no helmet. Were you thinking before you got on that bike or was it no, just I like, just oh, this it. is cool and I'm going to yeah, go for I, it? I just hit the throttle and started hitting the air shifter and the next thing I know the thing was like a two, that just literally took off like a shot. I could hear the turbos whine and I was like, oh shit, look how fast this thing is. Yeah, it was fast. Glad there were no rocks. Yeah, I'm glad the road, the road was nice and smooth. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, when people are like, oh, you've been 200 miles, I'm like, on a motorcycle without a helmet. So yeah, that's stupidity. So unfortunately, I've been pretty good at evading this stuff. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Back to what you were saying too about like soccer culturally, there's different forms of play, right? Like there's German style of play. Like there's some key figures within soccer that have developed different styles of play. And you see other people like use those, whether it's formations or different systems and styles, like that pervades all cultures within soccer. There's nothing new. Everything old is just repeated with new words, right? And but different coaches and organizations will say like this is the style we're going to play or also we we're going to get players and then fit the style to the players so same in football are you going towards your athlete or is your athlete fitting your system so do you have a system and you draft your system or are you basically building a system around the people you got exactly and some of that obviously is longevity too you know in the nfl it's win now and win forever uh there's a little bit of like development and building and those kind of things that happen within football and um soccer a little bit more I would say versus if you don't win you're done pretty much um yeah it, there's also the business model is completely different uh the way you make uh, a business out of soccer is the buying selling and trading of players power athlete nation want to take one minute to remind you why power athlete is performance for the people we love the garage shimmer. We love the athlete that is taking their performance into their own hands. We offer eight different strength and conditioning programs reverse engineered from common goals like getting jacked, becoming more athletic, or introducing the barbell for the first time. To learn which program is best for you, head to powerathletehq.com training. If you're an enthusiast, a parent, or a professional coach, we also offer education. At academy.powerathletehq.com, learn the method to the madness, the power athlete methodology, and a hell of a lot more. Next up, shop.powerathletehq.com. Hoodies, tees, sweats, shorts, you name it, we got it, including posters. 
you put this up in your garage gym, you're staring at it underneath the bar, I guarantee that you're going to add 10% to your next rep max. And finally, you can check us out on YouTube. We're dropping movement demonstrations going through our setup and execution of the finer movements found on all of our Power Athlete training programs and cutting clips of this podcast that you're listening to right now. So if you want to share in this experience with your lifting buddies, go ahead, seek out Power Athlete on YouTube. And now, back to the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. Explain. Really? So if, if you have an academy and you develop age groups all the way up, yes, you're doing that to also then fill your first team roster, second team roster, and have ticket sales and fans and all those things and marketing and television just like the NFL. But there's a whole other side of that market where you're developing players so that they're in a good position to be assets elsewhere. Uh, so then they basically have contracts and they sell the contracts. And so there's kind of a Correct. like, yeah, like development league. Yeah. yeah and, and even so let's say you have a player that's pretty good and uh, I didn't even know this thing existed, but you can sell technically like I think different portions of players. So let's say you sell them and you uh, retain royalty rights to a percentage of them. They get sold again. So now you're making money off of them when they've been outside of your organization now twice. Wow. There How do some, the players feel about this? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think if the players are developing and then playing at high levels, like players are athletes, they want to compete, they want to win, and they sure. want to get paid. So if those things are all checking the box, it's like that's part of it. There was some weird coup in soccer that they tried to start a different league. Did that go against this plan? Um, which league? Like, I feel like this happens know, all the time in soccer. It's yeah. like, we're going to have our own league. And then it's like, oh, no, it didn't happen. Well, I mean, uh, like uh, the present league. What's this? MLS. So, okay, so so this is MLS. Yeah. Uh, so MLS has been, I mean, what, like 20 years, 30 years? Yeah. yeah I mean, they, they've been around a, a long time, so they've established teams. They've yep. established rosters. Yep. And would you say that the majority of like the, you know, because, I mean, uh, sadly, the only time I watch women's soccer is when during the Olympics. And World it's, Cup, hopefully. And, yeah, and yeah. World Cup. But, like, you know, it's not like I'm like on a Thursday afternoon. I'm like, oh, hey, women's soccer's on. Let's watch. Even though uh, I scroll around, look for it because I have daughters, so I'm trying to yeah. expose them to sports. Yeah, like women's basketball. Like uh, I'm, my daughter made it. She's like, this is awful. Let's watch the men's stuff. It's so much faster. And I was like, bite your tongue. <laughs> like, but like that type of uh, you know. But like women's soccer is exciting because I mean, yeah. even more so because I think they're more technical than the men. I think it's a, it's two different games. Um, it's it's hard to compare. It's kind of like in women's basketball, for the most part, is played below the rim. Men's basketball is played above the rim. I think soccer is almost similar to that. There's very few women that are hitting a an 80 yard diagonal ball, you know. So the game is just played a little bit differently. I think both of them are beautiful in their own way. I love the physicality of both sides of it. Some people would say that the women's game there's uh, less flopping in the fouls. Yeah. So We're, go ahead. I, I know you have a... I think it's more physical. Uh, the, the, yeah. Because uh, the men just look like prima donnas. Well, like, the men I mean, are better actor. Is it, the men so are better I think it's culturally, like, too, that's the way the game came up was you had to draw fouls. You had to draw opportunities because, really, you're drawing a, a opportunity to score. In, in a game that doesn't allow for many opportunities to score kind of makes sense. But now, like, you know, obviously, if you flop, you can be issued a yellow card. So they're, uh, they're trying to kind of reinforce the rules and regulations around that. And I think culturally, just different styles of play. Like the reason, back to your point of the U.S. women World Cup champions, like 
Olympic champions, World Cup champions. They've done this multiple times. Shout out to Canada for winning their own too, sure. right? Um, so when we say like, okay, there was a league in the NWSL that a lot of these players were playing in was also because it was helping build out what the national team was trying to do. And that was, you know, under the guidance of Jill Ellis when she was a head coach. And like, um, so I think what you're seeing now is there's also opportunity for the EPL has made a big, the Premier League has made a big push to give big contracts to some of these players to bring them over to grow their league. And you've seen more partnerships like Man City's women's team. Like most of these teams have a women's team now, which is amazing. And and, and that's pretty recent. Yeah. Like 10 years ago, that didn't exist. Some, some of them did not. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I had a player that was Australian and very good and now is playing in Europe. Like I'm happy for her because getting paid her due, right? Um, and the NWSL is growing too, like addition of two teams this year and you have European coaches coming over here to coach now, and, you know, and um, uh, things like that. So I think that league is in a good place and only going to continue to grow. The MLS definitely has been around longer and new expansion teams here in Texas and Austin, right? And great stadiums. I'd love to see a women's team in Texas too. That'd be awesome. Then you can take your daughters there. You know, uh, anytime I can get them to to, to see uh, sports where like, um, you know, girls get to go out and compete and aren't just, you know, like, I don't know, like just kind of uh, like rough and ready. Yeah. You know, the like intensity. I, yeah. 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 That's. Yeah, that's exactly what I like. Like, that's what I want them to see. Yeah. Like, like this isn't something universal to like men or women. Yeah. This is athletes playing at the highest level and like doing it well. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, incredible execution and like, you know, great athletes moving through space and doing exciting things. I mean, that was, you know, I mean, I think that's what we hope for in terms of role models. Absolutely. And one thing I appreciate, appreciate about soccer is that there's so many different types of athletes. It's almost like track and field. Right. You you have to have your long distance runners in track and field to do well and win team championships. You also have to have your midfielders that can maintain possession and play pretty soccer and run all day. But, yeah, you need that forward that can sprint and beat everybody in behind. So it, it creates opportunity for different types of athletes to also succeed. So if you are super technical and that's your strong skill set, be that player. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it. And that bleeds into training, too. So how, how does like the, uh, like you were talking about like a feeder system, like a farm team, like, it, you know, they bring people on and develop, like, where does that like age? I mean, are, are most of the girls playing in college and then like, you know, feeding yeah. into this or, or is it even like coming out of high school and not even going to college and just getting right into like, you know, kind of like in Europe, like I was amazed, uh, the amount of guys that, uh, you know, for soccer and also rugby, like don't go to college. Yeah. They, you know, at 10, 12 years old, they get put into these programs and they get into these feeders. And I, I remember getting reached out to by like a god i want to say it was like a soccer team in spain and like their first team was like 10 and 12 year old kids and then they had another that was 14 to 16 and they yep. take these kids all the way and they were like you know introducing them to barbells at like 18 years old but not at this and i was like wait a minute like we don't do that in america like you know we play in high school and we go on to college yeah and uh so yeah, I, I didn't know how, how that works for women. it's it's very different for men and women even over here we have that like where there's age development teams starts u13 u14 and then u16 and then u17 and then you have like second team then you have first team so there's all of that and you have players that play up and down so players that are on the second team get a call up for a game um and then you also have things like homegrown players when a homegrown player goes through a developmental system and you have different right retentions to them versus when you just bring in a new player. So all of that comes in play. For women, the structure in the U.S. is still more of, hey, you play in a club setting. Uh, high school, I, I can't speak to the relevance or not. Like, 
I, I just I don't know the world of high school soccer. I know the world of college and pro, so I can speak to that. Most of them play in club, um, and then they go into college. Most of them there there are a couple players that now are getting signed as pros without going to college. Uh, you know, and that is I think going to become more of a norm, and you'll see more developmental systems like on the men's side. Um, it's not there yet. Like college is still the standard of like, hey, you play college, and then you still have a lot of well, what's the financial gain of me going in to try and play pro versus going and starting my degree job, right? Sure. And so I think that there's still like that lack of opportunity for everyone. Um, and when you start to see the league continue to grow, add more teams, hopefully eventually add second teams, then I think we're at a similar conversation. Right now, I'd say the big question mark is you're either elite when you're, you know, U20 age or and you're finishing out college and going into a career or you're going into your professional setting. Gotcha. Or gotcha. success in the career, like as if it's baseball, if it's basketball, like your progression and development as a professional is gradual, but it seems like tennis and soccer, it's like a flash in a pan. The younger you are, the higher you rise. <laughs> is there something to that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some interesting academy systems over the world and how they do that. And they even talk about um, socialization when you have these kids that their school is at the training grounds and all of this and that development is way different than having a normal school and learning what it's like to socialize and have awkward kid time, right? Like where did that go? So I think that they speak to that as part of the process and saying, how do we teach them to socialize? Especially now, can you imagine when technology? Uh, like, yes. Uh, <laughs> I uh, like one of my most favorite things is um, so I have twin girls that are ten, mm -hmm. and then my little boy's five. Uh, I love picking my kids up from school, and I love driving them to school. Uh, but I love like talking to them, just like so. How was school today? Or like asking them about like ah oh, like uh, what about the boys group or like the cliques, and more importantly like their impressions of other kids and different things. I get tears like I laugh like constantly like uh, uh, like like my daughter told me that that everybody breaks down into three groups there's wild kids there's semi wild kids and then there's boring kids and like I was like well what's a wild kid well they scream a lot what about those well they kind of scream what about the boring kids no they don't ever scream so like I'm like so wait a minute who's screaming and it's like well they yell a lot I'm like when in class she's like no on the playground I'm like what are you yelling at she's like I don't know people just yell a lot and like just these like ridiculous things that they put together and and then they've also added um they play uh games on their phone so yeah. our, our, like i think it's called uh, roblox okay yeah, yeah and yeah. so then what they'll do is they end up on these group chats yep. where like they're on speakerphone playing these games and i can hear them yelling at each other and i'm like what are you yelling about and it reminds me of like guys in call of duty like screaming at each other <laughs> and, and she'll be in yeah, yeah. oh yeah and like all these names like whatever noob and like uh this other we're like that's i'm like listen to this i'm like you guys are hilarious but just hearing like the interactions and I think uh, what sucks is that when they were, had Zoom school, yep. uh, they didn't have any of these interactions. Yep. They, they would have like, hey, we're going to like Zoom with this kid or like they would have like almost like play dates. Like a Zoom. Zoom hangout? It was fucking awful. Yeah. Like I was mortified for them. Uh, but we're lucky we live next door to a uh, uh, horse riding school. So my, my one daughter rides. And so there's all these kids over there. So I'm like, just go over there and like hang outside with the horses. Like go do like there's always kids over there. My brother uh, just bought a bunch of land and built a house on it. in North Carolina we're from and literally got horses because his daughter loves horses. So when you have playground in your backyard, you don't have yeah. to go far, you know. So I'm oh, yeah. very happy for them. And uh, yeah, like like the, the, uh, the hilarious part is so my daughter, uh, they jump horses. Oh, wow. And so uh, there's a whole drama. Uh, of these girls and their horses and like that uh -huh. is it's like a tv show so, like, 
I love it. Like I, I ask some questions all the time. Like, well, why, you know, you know, and I just, I'm, I'm inquisitive and like periodically I'll just turn on my phone and video it and be like, this is great. And I'll send it to my wife. And she's like 20 years. We're going to roast them with all this shit. <laughs> I can't wait. But yeah, my, uh, t- today was a big day. So my daughter, uh, they're 10 and my one daughter is actually the same height as my wife. So I'll show you a picture. How's your wife feel about that? Uh, she's, she said that the reason she married me was that she was, uh, she hated being short. So, Oh no. So there's my daughter at yeah. 10 and she's, she's got her. Yeah. So like, she was like, it's much good. earlier than she's expected. Like, That's why I married you at six, six, so that we wouldn't have short kids. Cause my wife's like, I never liked being short. So it was funny. She but yeah, that it was out. a big day today. She's like, is she taller than me? Yes. Yeah. And but, your other, the other twin, how tall is she? Uh, probably three inches shorter. My partner's a twin with a brother. Uh-huh. And so just like fascinating stories. I see pictures of them growing up and I have no idea who's who. And I'm like, they both had red hair and it's just, it's fascinating. I'm like, this is bad. Wow. Yeah. So I, uh, my, my one daughter is tall uh, and brunette with uh, brown eyes and my other daughter's blonde with green eyes and she's shorter. Wow. And so like, like the point where they'll go to school and like uh, Jamie, who's my, or the, the taller one, one of the girls was like, ah, oh, that Killy girl, she's, a, you know, basically she's a bitch and she like, was talking trash and she's like, you know, it's my sister. And the girl thought she was lying to her because they're in separate classes. She's like, no, legitimately, that's my sister. And they're like, no way. She's like, really? She's like, yeah, that's my twin sister. And then she pulls out her steak knife. Yeah. And then uh, but, but Jamie has a, uh, a rare ability. She, um, she can talk shit. Like, uh, like to the point where like, that it's been trained. Well, I've been honed. I've been prepping her for a long time to talk trash. Okay. And uh, she's pretty good at it. So she can like verbally assault people pretty well. Is that a part of your action board you were talking uh-huh. about? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So part of her, her thing is like somebody like screaming with words coming out. Yeah. No, she's, uh, she's, cause I, I, I always think that uh, you need to be able to physically defend yourself, but you need to be able to verbally defend yourself. True. And I think like that's like a, a big thing for me is like I'm not always going to be around. Uh, so then they need to one be able to take care of each other, and they need to be able to defend themselves. Both, you know, like and that like that, that's something I I never wanted to raise um, women that weren't capable. Yeah, um, that's a, a a thing that always drove me crazy. Where like you know, dads kind of raise their daughters almost like little princesses. Yeah, and uh, I wanted to raise my daughters just like boys. Um, mm. And like you know, because I always feel like you know, like it's, it's just such a weird deal. Like oh, you know, like I'm going to raise my boys to go out and conquer the world, but I'm going to treat my daughters like little princesses. Like yeah. it, it drove me crazy with uh, fathers. They'd be like, you know, like oh, look how pretty you are. And I, I like I've never, and not that they aren't pretty, but I've, I've never. Yeah. Put that at the forefront. I'm like, you know, are you capable? Are you intelligent? Can yeah. you, you know, like that, like that was, it was more important for me to raise uh, capable women than pretty little girls that just have bows in their hair. Well, that'll give them the confidence to be whatever type of woman they yeah. want to be. So if they want to be prissy later and th- yeah. they can be that, they can do whatever. But uh, the other one too is uh, I never wanted to raise girls that felt like they had to uh, wait for somebody to come save them. Like the idea that like you're going to be the damsel in distress and some guy's going to ride up on a horse and protect, you know, save you. I'm like, like, no, that's not who we're, that's not, <laughs> that's what, not what we're doing here. No, nah, you need to learn to change tires. <laughs> yeah. Like you got to learn to drive a manual transmission. Yeah. Like, like there's like, like I uh, had that list growing up too. I learned to drive a manual and a tractor. That was interesting. Uh, there's a lot of mailboxes that came down that day. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've, we've been working on it. The, the problem is I got a, uh, a double disc clutch on my truck. So it's a little heavy. So my daughter's not like clutching like you ought to. Yeah. So the, uh, but, uh, like, uh, the, uh, like I, I have taught them to shoot. 
Uh, that's mm-hmm. another big one. So like, uh, um, we have a ton of pigs, yep. like, so we're constantly shooting pigs. So I told my daughters like this year, I'm like, uh, you guys have got to go out and shoot pigs too. Yep. So we were out there like trying to like figure out and find like, so I put together some lighter guns for them. Mm-hmm. So that was a big one too. They're like, these are too heavy. I'm like, let's get lighter ones. <laughs> yeah. So like, uh, but that's, that's what I want for them. I want them to feel like capable. And, uh, I was like, you know, at some point you're going to have to save some dude yep. or, you know, wh- whoever, but like, that's what I want for them like capable women I just don't like how society kind of creates this like this damsel in distress I'm like it's bullshit yeah you know all the Disney movies like you know yeah I mean I was raised I guess I was my own person from the day I came out like it just I had a grandmother that was like an anesthetician I could have gotten facials I thought that was normal like oh you get facials you're 10 years old like that's an option upstairs in everybody's house but um, I was like, yeah, no, I don't want that. Like, I just want to play outside and I want to get dirty. I want to go work on the farm. I wanted to do that kind of stuff. And um, the biggest fights I ever had with my mom growing up were around clothes, right? Like, oh, you need to get dressed up for this. I'm like, absolutely not. Like, and so I think it's just yeah, we fascinating. Fight on that one too. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's they, like, why? My, my kids dress like hobos. Yeah, yeah. It's so much better. So I tell them, I'm like, I like, I tell them all the time, I'm like, hey, so I've accused my one daughter of being colorblind. I'm like, I'm like, nobody would have put that two those outfits together. Um, and then uh, she, uh, uh, like, we'll get in the car and she'll forget her socks or a sock or a shoe, and like, it's it's hilarious. I'm like, I would have never left school with, or I would have never left the house without shoes. There's a good chance my daughters are leaving without shoes. Yeah. And then I'm like, Ugh. well, be a college athlete, you can wear sweatpants, flip flops, whatever the hell you want to class. I, you, you or know, a pro, or, or a pro, you can even be even better. But like I. I think a lot of times, and I and I, I think uh, you've seen this with with athletes too, where because people are gifted athletes early, they're allowed to be incomplete people. And yeah. I think uh, we saw this in football all the time. I mean, we see we still see it. We see guys in the NFL who are just incomplete people because they were so gifted athletically that people were just willing to do shit for them yeah. or were able to make excuses for them. Or didn't want to get in the way too, right? Like I feel like that's part of it is almost passivism. Like I don't want to do anything that could change your opportunities so that you just focus on this. Yeah, but like- I I don't uh, think sometimes it's that deceitful of like, oh, I'm just going to make an excuse so you can do whatever. I think sometimes it is good intention, but they don't have education to support it. But to, to me, that's that's just enabling. Like, True. Like, and and I, I saw this entire my NFL career. I saw it in college, where dudes were incomplete. Like they like they somebody did not teach them the basic skills they need to be successful in life because yeah. they were such gifted athletes. Yeah. And I thought that was a cop out. I, I agree with parts of that, like accountability, trust, loyalty, like those things we talk about that should be non negotiables. I feel like for people, the excuses and different things like that, absolutely. But those are the people that. Um, they can become pros, right? But eventually something's going to catch up. How long can you be a pro? Yeah. And well, some I, of that washes in there. I mean, what's amazing in female and uh, women's soccer, uh, the longevity these girls have in their in their careers is crazy. Yeah, look at Carly Lloyd. I mean, these girls are like in their late 30s and 40s and they're still playing at a high level. You know, an age stigma, I think, is something that should be talked about in sport, especially like, the, hey, you're this age and doing this. And I'm like, maybe... We've talked about the increase in lifespan. We've never talked about an increase in athletic lifespan. Well, I mean, it's, it's like, look at Tom Brady. Exactly. I mean, he's the best to ever do the job, and all they ever do is bring up his age. Yeah. And, and the guy's like, how much more, like, uh, yeah. age shaming do they do for this poor guy? Yeah. But, like, there's a, such a weird deal. Like, in the NFL, like, their perception of you almost goes from, like, rose-colored glasses to, like, black tint when you turn 30. Yeah. Like, I remember I was 29, and, like, them talking to me one way, and then 30. Like, all of a sudden, I turned 30, and I was like, 
did the room just get chilly? Eligible like, contracts, only one year. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, it, it was incredible. No. Like, like uh, the, you know, the way people talked to me when I was at 32 was different than I was 28. I'm like, I'm really the same person. Like, yeah. what's going on here? And how and was, with science and all these other things we can do with assessment, there's so many great things we can do to study the body to not just identify both sides biological age. It's like, yeah, why are we just sticking with that one? Football coaches and more importantly, scouts and the people that make those decisions aren't the sharpest knives in the drawer. And so, they've been doing it for a long time. And they've been doing it for a long time. So like probably, I mean, but, but so, so this is wild to me. I, uh, I was looking at some NFL film stuff Yeah. and like when dudes were like legitimately in their thirties, when you see some of the older NFLs, those guys might've been 130. Like a 30-year-old NFL player, you're like, you see Terry Bradshaw or like, uh, uh, who was it, Kenny Stabler, these guys, like take their, like they were like 32, they took off the helmet, like full head of gray hair. <laughs> and you're like, holy shit, dude, those dudes look old. Yeah. And then you look at Tom Brady, I mean, I don't know if he's had any work done, I yeah. kind of think he has, uh, but he still looks, he, he looks healthy and young and he, he moves pretty well. I mean, he's, you know, I mean, he's legitimately had three or four NFL or Hall of Fame careers. Yeah. So like, why is it that age is such an issue for him? Yeah. Just because they have nothing else to talk about, maybe. But uh, like I, I know, like when like watching the the Olympics, like they always bring that up. Like you know, they want to talk about the young girls and like you know they're the future, and then the old guard. like gymnasts, gymnasts especially, right? Yeah. And even tennis, like I remember Roger Federer, like as soon as he got into a certain age, and then Rafa Nadal, they're like, "This is going to be their last time." And then yeah. it's like seven years later, this is going to be their last time. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll look at Simone Biles. Yep. Like uh, those girls peak at what, like 14 years old. And then they're like, you know, she's in her twenties and is better than all these other girls. And they're like, we can't believe it. She's defied age. And I'm like, she's like 22 years old. You <laughs> Serena fucking- Williams. Yeah. You know, and that's the other thing they don't talk about too is one thing you'll never have to deal with as an NFL player is have a baby while you're also a pro. Thank I've God. had this happen three times and expected unexpected whatever doesn't matter but it's like that's a whole journey and process and that's something that's like a stigma as well but i've had players come back and i mean the way they play afterwards it's some of them are better why i mean any athlete that goes through an injury what do they get a ton of that pro careers don't afford training training and rest yeah Yeah. oh you're gonna you gotta let your body actually heal after having a baby you know so um I think that's an interesting thing, like the ageism and then also just like having children. Like, why is that not something we accept more? Um, man, I, I don't know. Like, like there's so many stigmas attached to, yeah. to, to female sports, but also to male sports. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that uh, the people that are making the decisions have this optics that uh, like, I mean, I, I still hear, you know, announcers and different people say shit where I'm like. I can't believe the person just said that. I, I understand. I uh, muted a lot like, of times. Like I'm, I'm, I'm sure, and you're like, I can't believe that shit. Just like, yeah. it, it, like, like it's um, uh, you've you've seen the the Pitch Perfect movies, of course. Okay, uh, like you know the male announcer dude who yes. he just says like a ton of like yes. inappropriate, inappropriate things shit. all the time, yeah. all the time. It's like you know, and like it, it's to the point. Like I have, my daughters love those movies, yeah. so of course I watched them all, and I think they're hysterical. You actually watch them before them. I have daughters, and I've watched them. <laughs> there you go. But but the dude where it's like, wow, that was really sexist. And he'll be like, yeah, you know, like like that's where yeah. I hear like announcers, especially on the female sports station shit. I'm like, God damn, I can't believe they just said that. Yeah. And uh, I just think it, maybe it's a cultural thing. I mean, yeah. maybe it's just like, I, I don't know. I, uh, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the way the media is covering sports these well, days Well, sometimes anyway. too, right? Like announcers that work a men's sport, they'll cover a women's sport, but it doesn't go vice versa. Like, uh, I think Doris Burke just covered an NBA game and that was like the first ever on live TV or whatever. And I'm like, there, it's easy to be given a women's sport. It's hard to earn a men's yeah. sport. Well, the, uh, 
NFL realized that their greatest, uh, the place they were failing the most was in converting women over into uh, football fans. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, so all like the women's sideline announcers and, yeah. the, and you know, that, that whole thing was not like these women have availed themselves. Yeah. That was 100% an optics change to try to pull more women in because they, they, they came in with this huge demographics. I was sitting in a meeting yeah. where they were like, they circled. They're like, <laughs> this huge demographic, like I, I think they said uh, women purchase like 80% of everything. Yeah. Like, uh, like even like men's clothes. Consumerism. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, where so do they, you get your clothes? Your wife gets them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the optics for that was like pretty apparent in the NFL and they even said like we're changing this whole thing like I was sitting in a meeting for the NFLPA and they're like Susan P. Komen Foundation yeah. which are good charities yep. but like they didn't do it for benevolent reasons right they did it because they were trying to attract more female right uh, you know list or opportunity uh, um, yeah like more female fans to purchase more shit yep. and like you know it's reason they have you know Michelle Tafoya and all this other stuff not because they're incredibly gifted or they have something to say it's because they've, they found demographic <laughs> groups that women identify with other women if it's a whole yeah. bunch of dudes who are not going to identify with it. Yeah. And I mean, I, you see that in coaching too, right? Like it's not just on the sidelines or it's how many females were athletic trainers when you were in the NFL? Uh, man, maybe I, I, we had more in college. Yeah. So at, at Berkeley we had probably at Berkeley. We, yeah. At Ber- yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, oh, that's why I prefaced it. Uh, small I conservative school in Northern California. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I always refer to Berkeley as a small conservative <laughs> school in Northern California. You might have heard of it, you know. Uh, but uh, in the NFL, I, I can't think. I mean, we, we didn't have a female strength coach. We didn't have a, 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 a woman. I mean, we obviously had some lady docs, but we didn't have any women trainers. So um, I asked a couple of my guys when I arrived, I was like, have you ever had a female coach? He's like, um, most of the answers I got were I've had a PT or like an athletic trainer. I'm like, that's great. And you see that, like that growth in the dietitian space and the sports med space, but it's still like lingering. There's a few, but it's like, man, what's the hesitancy there? And, um, something I said when I was talking to different ownership groups and different conversations over my career was, you know, it's interesting that a lot of players, a good majority of men's players are raised by who a single mom. And their most important relationships culturally, if they're Latin, is their family and their mothers and their grandmothers. And yet, when we bring a female into the space, they're treated completely different. I'm treated with more respect for being a female, not because I'm a woman in the space, but because when they see me, I am a female. Does that make sense? And it's like, wow. And now the coaching and the relationship is completely different. So uh, to something I heard you say earlier, it's... You know, how do you make someone mentally tough? To me, that's through consistency. Like, it's not through um, verbiage. It's not through tone. It's not through those things. It's how do you draw a consistent effort out of someone and then repeat that process in perpetuity? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when you bring in different people that are raised different ways and from different socioeconomic statuses, it's really easy to start drawing connection when you look like someone that's already been important to them. Hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, when I, um, so when I went from Philadelphia to Kansas city, I moved back to California and, uh, I ended up training at athletes performance. Oh yeah. And, uh, Abby Wombach was one of our training partners. Yeah. So, uh, she's it was, all right. Yeah. She's all right. <laughs> uh, so it was really the first, like, cause, uh, you know, I mean, like, 
I didn't grow up with sisters. Yeah. Uh, you know, so pretty much like my mom was the only girl we knew growing up, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I like we didn't have any female cousins. Yeah. Like it was all boys. And then I went to college, and obviously you play football. And all. like I, I had never worked in a situation or even had a female training partner. Yeah. Until I went to athletes' performance and yeah. had to be trained with us, and. I don't give this title easily. Fucking savage. Yeah. Like a completely different type of athlete yep. to the point where like she would like sense weakness on us and fucking go harder. Yep. And like she was an incredible training partner and to the point where like it wasn't like any point where you're like, you know, let this girl beat you. I'm like, you know, I, I like it, it was it was interesting <laughs> removal where like like it wasn't necessarily uh, sex related yep. in terms of like she was like ran like I mean, and she trained with us yep. like she did all of our football sprints she did all of our agilities did everything i mean yep. trained in all of our groups like if we were living like i remember we had uh verstegen had these three versa climbers that were all kind of bolted together and we used to have to do like uh it was a hundred step races yep. and like we would go until people just quit and dude that girl had no quit in her yep to the point where i was like holy shit dude this girl's gonna fucking kill me i gotta try to go <laughs> and uh she was uh, I was always so impressed with her as an athlete and I've always told people I'm like that's still to this day one of the hardest working people a person I've ever been around yeah you and know, she's okay yeah, yeah. she's decent you know um, I, I think diesel yeah yeah diesel yeah, <laughs> yeah. no she's yeah. I, when you work with athletes that have high motors, you, I think that gender is a thing, male, female, but I think there's also elite athlete. Like we can just remove kind of that whole thing from the conversation. And it's like when you see elite athletes enter the room, I, there's a different sense to everything and how they train, how they prepare. And I'm talking like the 1% of the 1%. And uh, it's fascinating to work with those people, but it's also fascinating to just hear more about their lives and how they approach everything. It's with that same kind of competitive edge. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, uh, you know, people are universe. Like, it, it's not as if, like, uh, competition is somehow, like, split <laughs> yeah. like i mean like uh you know the the level of competition is still high and like people don't like to lose yeah like that's not a male or female that's yep. not like a you know if you don't like to lose you don't like to lose i don't give a shit who it is yep. and that was always my deal like i didn't care if we were playing checkers or chess or football whatever it is i just don't like to lose and risk aversion right that's not gender specific either like no, if you're I'm, not willing to risk then that's who you are and yeah. I think you are pretty risky to no, I, I have, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I've like <laughs> legitimately been like, I can't believe I like my, my mom always said, she's like, I'm just amazed you're here. And I'm like, I think I just cheated death too many times. But I mean, that's probably pretty accurate for most athletes yeah. because to be able to do that job, you have to be, like you said, risk averse. And there's a certain personality that's like, no, I'm going to strap on this helmet. I'm going to run a hundred miles an hour into these people over and over again. Yeah. So but, uh, you know, I think the one thing that I think we're seeing now is that uh, we're training athletes like athletes and yeah. not necessarily dividing them and kind of putting them based upon, you know, sex and gender and all these other things. Yeah. And also, I think we're training athletes as people and like humans. The, it's not just, oh, you play this sport and that's what you do. Yeah, that's a huge driving factor. But there's so many other factors that go into how you are coming into the gym that day and what's actually the priority. Right. And understanding all those things changes training like i'm not saying that you're not going to train but we can definitely pivot on what we were going to be doing mm -hmm. based on some of these other things that may be happening have you seen um you know like uh like the physiology is there a different physiology for training um you know like we we've experienced it where like uh you know we found that like women could handle a higher percentage of their one rm for more reps mm -hmm. like like that yeah. like like we we found some really interesting stuff where we were doing like uh, uh half fields muscle fiber tests <laughs> where we were asking people to squat a one rm yep. and then take 
taken off 20 percent and ask them to do max reps and if they go five to seven and they you know and this whole deal we had a girl who was a pretty high level triple jumper at san luis obispo mm-hmm. she squatted like a, i think a legit like 315 and a body weight of like 135 so yeah. she was strong had trained big background we strip off 80 percent she did like 30 reps yeah i i think there is something to that especially when you talk about power athletes uh so if you're talking a jumper or a thrower like yeah there's something different there uh as a former thrower, it's funny. We were sitting around earlier talking stories about Jude Logan, who mm-hmm. passed away recently. Yeah, rest yeah, and the number of coaches he's influenced, because I don't know if you know this fun fact, but if you were a thrower and you're also a coach, I, we probably all know each other. Like, yeah. it, there's... Oh, no, no. Uh, uh, so the joke that we have is that uh, all the throwers we know as parents were all friends. Yeah. And they didn't let them sign the permission slip. Correct. So that, that that's always the joke. It's like, you guys could all play. Oh, your mom didn't sign the permission slip. And they're all friends. We can't be friends until now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we just found each other. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and it's fascinating because we were talking about some of that training volume. And one thing I remember from throwing, and I've met a lot of really cool, much better than me throwers along the way, is how much we can handle um, high level percentages and have our best competitions. So the intensity, but also the volume side of it, we could do volume and I feel great going into a comp. Whereas I think there is a big difference in it it may be more muscle fiber typing and even neural sympathetic, parasympathetic drive of an athlete. And we just didn't know what to call it back then. We're like, oh, yeah, you're just powerful, you know, or you're just strong. Like, that's probably the way we classified things back then. Um, But now it'd be much more interesting to dive into like some of the HRV and things like that around training. What what was Adam? Um um at nelson yeah uh <laughs> well yeah no i was I, I know you know what i'm talking about adam uh nelson but you remember he did it was like 585 for like a set of like 25 or he did yeah a fantastic story god I, I, two I, more yeah yeah for our listeners on youtube yeah. adam just search adam nelson power athlete he breaks it down amazing storyteller amazing athlete gold medalist yeah But yeah, he squats like something crazy, like 600 pounds for like, you know, 20 plus reps and like, you know, failed it or like at 18, they're like two more, two more, just keep stacking them on. And uh, he he told me the story and I I told him like, hey man, like the one thing I'm bummed at is there was no social media because if I had seen you do that, I would have flown out and come and trained with you. Like same, same with Derek Woodski. Yeah. If if, if I had known that those guys were out there doing that because we were training in our own personal groups yep. and we were in our bubble thought we were killing it and if i had known that somebody else out there that i thought was training harder than us yeah i would have either flown them out or we would have gone and seen them a thousand percent and, uh, that's one thing i always tell them like, i'm so bummed that one we weren't friends and two there wasn't social media because i know you motherfuckers were out there i would have shown up and knocked on your door and the other side of it is i don't you know given your throwing distances of whatever they were back in the day you were never a bad thrower you were just throwing the wrong decade <laughs> i like that one yeah that's, That's a good, good one. one. Like 20 years ago, you would have got the gold medal. Today, not so Correct. much. Correct. Like Krauser and those guys that are just PR and PR and PR. And every time they throw, it's over a certain distance. You're just like, yeah, I was in the wrong decade. And like Michelle Carter, Laura Garrity, like those throwers. I'm like, my first college meet was against the Olympian. Like, here here we are. Like, that's the timeline, you know? And I know uh, Derek was, uh told me a Jeff Logan stories. And, uh, I, you know, I mean, just seemed like a pretty legendary dude. And So I didn't know him when I was a thrower. Uh, we actually got to know each other because I had the same type of leukemia as him. So I got diagnosed in 2015 and he was diagnosed a couple of years later. And then, um, I was given an opportunity to go speak at summer strong in 19. And, um, one of the things I knew I wanted to do cause he was battling right then. And something that I, 
I always share is you should share your scars because then you afford people of the same to be able to feel like they can share about theirs. Um, and a lot of our scars we can't see, right? Like you're talking about brain stuff and leukemia. Like we don't know necessarily what's happening in our body. We don't know why we get it, but it happens. And when you come out on the other side of it, you better believe you're going to connect with other people and help them through that as well. So he was going through it and his whole thing was like giver. And it's funny because it's like that is him to a T. He, he, all he did was care about other people and being able to pour into those other people. So when I spoke at Summer Strong, instead of having like a moment of silence for people to reflect upon him, I was like, we should have a moment of strength. And we did just like a stand up and like audible clap in, in the space because I'm a big believer, kind of like your action board of the energy we put out into the world is what we're going to get back from it. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm very very sad to know that he's not with us, but the number of people he's impacted that now are reconnecting, like how many stories have you had with Derek recently? You know, I think that that's pretty special to speak to someone's legacy. Yeah. So, um, I wish his family all the best too. I mean, they always talk about like the mark of a man is not, you know, what he did, but more importantly, how he influences others. Yeah. And the analogy I think about constantly is um, like how big of a rock can you throw in a, in a comp pool? You know, you think about like a little pebble and you see little kind of this, yeah. you put a big splash and all of a sudden that echoes for eternity. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think the greatest uh, compliment you can pay somebody is they were a big rock and they put out a big splash. And to have that many people come forward with moments, um, you know, just goes to show that like, you know, I mean, how, how impactful, but what's cool is how all of these high level throwers that I've been fortunate enough, we've been f- fortunate enough to connect through Sornex. Like I, I didn't know these guys, like I didn't know Sornex. I, I met Bert. Uh, we actually in the elevator when I got invited to pe- compete in the CrossFit games. <laughs> so I was getting ready to go play for the Patriots and they invited me to compete in the CrossFit games. And I was like, sure, I'll show up and win this thing. <laughs> like, like 320 pounds, you know, I didn't yeah. know what it was. I'd yeah. never done CrossFit, but like if somebody's You didn't gonna, know they ran. Well, I, I didn't know they ran far. I, I was real good at sprinting. I yeah. wasn't good at running distance, but they like hit me up and was like, hey, and I was like, sure, I'll, what do you mean? I'll fucking show up and win this thing, yeah. like, which is my delusional mentality. Um, like if somebody's competing, I'm going to win. And um, Okay, Abby Wombeck. Yeah, seriously. Like I remember at one point being like, I think I'm going to punch her just to see what happens and see if I could just knock her out. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure if I had punched her, she would have fucking fought me. A thousand percent. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she, I don't. I, I don't know who would have won. I'm not going to speak to that. Uh, I think I was bigger than her. She, yeah, but she 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 was def- she definitely would have beat up Turley. Yeah, uh, Kyle was one of our training partners, and she would have whipped his ass. Uh, the uh, uh, but yeah, like the no, I don't know, meeting throwers. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. So so I, I meet Bert in the uh, elevator going mm-hmm. up uh, at the out in Aromas. We're like walking up in the elevator. And I can see this dude rubbernecking me. And it wasn't until like years later when I met Bert, I think we taught a seminar or we got connected. I forgot how it was. Uh, CSC, CSCCA 2016 and then podcast. Yeah. Actually. And then he tells me, he's like, hey, uh, I rode up in the elevator with you. And I was like, I fucking remember that dude rubbernecking me. He's like, yeah, I thought I was uh, feeling pretty good. I was feeling pretty big at like 250. And all of a sudden you step on it like legitimately. He's like, what'd you weigh? I'm like, I was 317 or 315 or something. <laughs> and he's like, holy shit. Like it was uh, like. And, you two were the only dudes over six feet. And the only people over 200 pounds. So yeah, so they, they showed up and the next biggest guy was like 175 and I was like 308 or th- something. And I was like, oh, fuck, they're going to kill me. <laughs> and we, I'm like chasing these little dudes through the mountains. I'm like, fuck, this didn't end. But I, I finished like, I think it's 70 out of 200 people. Which, I have to go to the record book. Yeah, <laughs> it Fact was somewhere, I, I believe, I was in the top 100. I know that. I made it to the end. Other people quit. I didn't quit. 
but uh, it, it's cool to hear these guys uh, all connected because of him and Jed Logan and that. And that's uh, man, I mean, it's a it's a great compliment. And at the end of the day, like as my dad used to tell me, nobody's getting out of this thing alive. Yep. So you know how people remember you, and more importantly, you know how people cherish your name is so important. Yeah, the echoes in eternity. It's like uh, the quote is, "What we do in life echoes in eternity." It's yeah. actually tattooed on my chest, the with an infinity symbol through my heart, because I think if you lead with your heart when you're meeting people, that impact, like they're gonna remember that. How many athletes have you coached, and they don't know how to write a program, but they remember who you are. Sure. So I think that's a lasting impact that we all get to make. But it even goes beyond that. I think as we kind of mature in age two, how many coaches have you been able to impact and not just athletes, right? And a lot of the work you guys do is educating coaches, but it's also growing that community. Megan, you dropped in on 2019 symposium. Hmm. And that was, I mean, that was probably our best run and most impactful moment. It was uh, by far the most stressful symposium we'd ever had. Exactly. But it was, However, it was, it was good. It was excellent. Yeah. They, Why was it so stressful? It's just a lot. So uh, uh, we always had this idea for every symposium that it had to be bigger and better. Mm. And so all of a sudden we had like three locations. There was like 20 speakers and like it was just there was a lot of moving pieces and like everything from like different venues and gear and not getting. I mean, like there was a lot of stuff going off behind the scenes for us to pull it off. And I mean, the challenge that we put forth to us as coaches, we had one, two, three, four coaches leading 175 athletes during the same warm-up yeah. and then workout. I'm going to highlight some of that at the my NSCA talk tomorrow. But, um, yeah, it was... And you didn't hire an event staff to help run it? No, Ooh. we did. <laughs> no, we did hire an event planner who proved to... Who kind of sold us on a bag of goods that they were going to be able to do a lot more than they did. And we ended up, like, in typical status, like, the ball got dropped and we had to, like... Pick it up and run it with up it. And, run. Yeah. and then, uh, you know, and then the fact that we had all those Talk To Me Johnnies where, like, pretty much it's like, we're just going to put you on stage and I had to interview all those people for two years in a row. 500 podcasts, John. <laughs> yeah. That's how many uh, it but takes. It, like, there was just a lot, you know, and then, uh, and then my favorite piece is, like, we're out there and, like, we decided to have a pancake breakfast. <laughs> and uh, next thing you know, like, hey, you got to cook pancakes. So I'm out there literally before the talk, like making people pancakes. <laughs> so like me and Chef Lewis are out there cooking pancakes. And I'm like, so like not only did I go and interview people, we're running all this stuff. I'm out here cooking pancakes too. It was just, which I do. I, I, I love making pancakes. So that was actually the highlight. But, uh, so the next just, one's bigger and better then. Well, we decided what was wild is like we were like, how do we, uh, like, how do we make this thing bigger? Yep. And then COVID hit and we were like, oh, thank God. We don't have to do it. <laughs> yeah. And then within this year, we just did uh, the collective which was neat. We just made it more of like about our coaches, our block one coaches, and cool. brought, brought them in instead of like highlighting outside people. Yeah. But we did have Derek come, which was cool. Yeah. And we, we tapped into people that are doing amazing things yep. that connected through our network yep. and then put them on stage and help them craft presentation. Uh, many was their first opportunity to speak. Oh, wow. And as uh, John gave me my first opportunity to speak, hell, teaching and coaching mentoring it's, it's that's what it's all about so it was cool to see them evolve yeah into share. that same role yeah and, and share i mean it was wild like with three of the guys that submitted had like a similar story was it three or four three yeah three three of the guys had like kind of a similar addiction mm-hmm. coming out the other side and like now here how they're helping it and they these guys all came up and gave their stories that were all kind of similar <laughs> and then we kind of put them on a panel and allowed them and it was it was really neat to see them like 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 that growth of like, hey, this is who I was, and like, I, I think a lot, a lot of times with those uh, kind of like early, early, maybe like trials and tribulations, or maybe those negativity 
Like, yeah. you know, people tend to hide from it. Like these dudes owned it. Like mm-hmm. I was a piece of shit. I was doing drugs, you know, this. And like, this is what it taught me. This is where I hit and this is where I've transformed. And like every one of them owned it, which I was like, fuck. Well, I mean, yeah, if you avoid your weaknesses, you're never going to get anywhere, right? God, sometimes like, uh, it's, is, it's hard. It's, yeah. No, like I, I like, like I sat there listening to it and being like, fuck man, like, like, I think with some things like, uh, you know, like maybe things, you know, deep down, it's hard to like share those things and like kind of put them out there. And like those guys did it. And I was so proud of them. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's part of like the whole culture of what's happening of sharing depression within pro sports, uh, and the conversation around PTSD with it, whether it's military or otherwise, like that conversation has changed a lot. But to your point, when people share those experiences, you know, there's three other people in the room that then felt validated for what they were doing and stayed the course because of it. Mm -hmm. And I'm like that, that's what it's all about to your point of, um, at the end of the day, like I I love the book, uh, the subtle art of not giving a fuck. Like there's (laughs) nothing you can go through that someone hasn't been through. You just haven't met them yet. Um, and I'm like, I'm pretty stubborn. So it took something for me. It took something called cancer for me to be ready to change. Does that make sense? Man, I, uh, my dad passed away from cancer. And uh, it ate him to the bone in probably two months. And like uh, we, we have a cancer charity with Wade's Army uh, yep. that, uh, you know, we raise money for neuroblastoma because, yep. I mean, it, like seeing it attack little kids. Like I uh, um, like one of uh, my girls go to one, one of their friends at school. Uh, they're 10. Her younger sister, we just got yesterday, they put her on hospice. She's yep. got some rare brain cancer. And like like, I, like a year ago, we were at a birthday party and I, I met, you know, like saw the girls and knew her. And then all of a sudden, my wife showed her this picture. And I'm like looking at this and they're like, you know, they're, they're she's in hospice, you know, her time is near. And you're like, like little kid, like, I, like my dad was 80. Yeah. Like I saw it eat him to the bone. It was fucking awful yep. to, to sit there. But like he had an amazing life. Like seeing little kids at eighteen months and this, like I just, I can't make sense of it. No, and uh, it's fucking awful, and it's it steals the Lord loved ones from us. Yep. And so, like when I hear you know things like diet, exercise, training, or anything we can do, and I'm like, you know, anything that we can do, I, I like, yeah, I I like you know, I, I think as humans we try to like make some sense of it, and then you realize like, yeah, nah, there's no sense for this shit. Yeah, like we're here. You know, and nobody gets to decide how long we get to be here and all this stuff is fucking awful. And you can train and you can do all that other stuff and you still get something that you don't see coming. But the whole point of training isn't the training. It's so you're prepared when something happens. And I 100% believe I was in the best shape of my life 2014. And I was like, had I not done that, I don't know that I'd be here. So the the whole fact of like choosing struggle is still something like I seek out. Um, whether it's a, something as simple as getting in Lake Washington right now because it's freezing or, you know, training hard. That intensity factor of struggle is something that I seek because it's like you never know what's coming and it's good to know you can do it. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, if, if you've never done the work and you're in the heavyweight fight of your life, yeah, you know, have you done the done what's required of you for it? No, man, it's crazy. Yeah, the, uh, yeah, that, it, like I, like I said, I, I didn't know Judd Logan. I just know him, you know, secondhand from what Bert, but people that I respect and people that I, I count as friends and yeah. like I have a ton of admiration for when they pay somebody that much respect, like I'm sad I didn't get a chance to meet him. Yeah. So. All right, Pete. Yeah. Well, well, I'm good to end it there, man. That yeah. was, uh, dude, good. thank you so much. Yeah. That was yeah. awesome. Thank you, Megan. And uh, thanks for tuning in. Another episode of Power Athlete Radio. Bye.
Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can find Coach Megan Young on Instagram at Coach underscore Mega Strong. Until next time, bye! Drop on, drop on.